Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. This is the second episode in a series covering this year's thematic conferences from the International Association for the Study of the Commons. Today we have three guests who are participating in the upcoming conference on fisheries and aquaculture, which will be taking place from March 9th to March 11th. You can find more information and register to participate in the link in our show notes. To talk more about fisheries and aquaculture, we are speaking with Eric Tulin, Jessica Blythe, and Caroline Ferguson. Eric is the Applied Behavioral Science Lead at RARE and directs research at the Center for Behavior and the Environment. He focuses on bridging the academic practice gap through collaborations with research partners and environmental practitioners. Jessica is an assistant professor at the Environmental Sustainability Research Center at Brock University in Canada. Trained as a human geographer, Jessica's research explores how various groups of people experience social ecological change and what explains their differential capacities to respond. Caroline is a fourth-year PhD student in the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources at Stanford University. Her current research investigates gender in Palau's sea cucumber fishery through an intersectional lens, as well as forced migration and climate adaptation in the Marshall Islands. This is the In Common Podcast. It's kind of a special edition, I would say, of the podcast because we've been since last year associated with the International Association of the Commons. And part of this is that we want to connect with the thematic conferences that they're doing throughout this year. And and the next one coming up is the Fisheries and Aquaculture Conference, which um, all of us are going to be participating in. So let's have a little bit of conversation about fisheries and aquaculture in the commons. Eric, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, so I'm Eric Tuline, uh, coming to you from the surprisingly presently sunny Seattle, Washington. Um, so I lead research at the Center for Behavior and the Environment, um, which is housed within the environmental organization RARE, um, who's been running behavior change campaigns for environmental and social outcomes across the globe for the past few decades. Um, the center is much more recent. It sort of came out of this recognition that at their heart, you know, the vast majority of environmental challenges are challenges about human behavior. Um, so if we want environmental outcomes, we need to shift behavior. Uh, so the center emerged as a sort of field building initiative, working both with RARE on its own programs, as well as building capacity throughout the environmental space on integrating insights from behavioral science into that work. So my work in particular involves thinking about how behavioral science theories and empirical findings apply to environmental challenges, as well as running our own research in cases where we see gaps in terms of what practitioners in the space need to know um, to better shift environmental behaviors. Uh, in terms of the fishery stuff, um, so RARE's flagship behavior change program is called Fish Forever. That's now up in over a thousand coastal communities. And uh, my work with them is really trying to figure out, well, what does behavioral science have to say about how that program can sort of be uh, optimized to deliver both for the social welfare of the communities that depend on those fisheries, as well as um, for the environmental impacts themselves. Carolyn, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Caroline. Uh, I'm a fourth year PhD student at Stanford, and I'm really interested in fish as local food and then fish as this global commodity and when those come into conflict with each other. So I look at how communities respond to the commoditization of their seafood resources and also how commoditization impacts local food security and food sovereignty. Uh, and my work that I'm presenting at the conference is done in partnership with 
many NGOs and practitioners and scholars from the Pacific looking at the impact of COVID-19 on these rural food systems in the Pacific. So how have the market disruptions associated with COVID-19 impacted people's ability to obtain foods, to feed themselves, and then what sort of adaptations have they used to ensure food security for all? And we, we really have learned that these local food systems are quite resilient to the shocks associated with COVID-19. And so what lessons can we learn about local food production that have implications for, for future shocks as well? Jessica. Hi, uh, I'm Jessica Blythe. I'm an assistant professor at Brock University, which is strangely located in central Canada, strange for an ocean scientist, <laughs> um, but I'm a Newfoundlander and I grew up um, during the collapse of the cod stocks. So I think that's where my interest stems from. My dad was also a marine scientist who used to spend summers at sea researching cod while I would listen to the foghorn from my bedroom. So I didn't have any choice but to become an ocean scientist um, coming from that background. And I think it fueled my interest in both, you know, watching the cod stock collapse. Um, you saw that in Newfoundland. I saw communities that I used to visit that used to be vibrant places that supported communities um, sort of die off. Uh, so I guess that stems into a research interest in both healthy ecosystems and also vibrant communities. Um, so my research has focused uh, primarily on how do coastal communities and fishing communities in particular experience various types of change uh, and how do they respond to them? And what explains this, the hugely differential capacity to respond to these challenges, uh, which are always ongoing and surprising. Um, yeah, so that's been where my research has, has broadly focused. And recently I've started venturing into what I would consider the dark side for a fishery scientist, which is um, man conservation. <laughs> I've tended to consider the conservation community different from the management community, which I know is simplistic. Um, but recently, particularly with the emergence of other effective conservation measures, OECMs, um, I'm starting to ask and work with conservation colleagues to, to ask and answer the question, what does local fisheries management contribute to conservation? Um, and I know many people have worked on that for a while, but for me, it's a huge epiphany. Um, so that's the work I'll be presenting at the conference. Great. I would be interested to hear what do you think are the main governance challenges when you think about your work uh, going forward in fisheries at the moment? Like one thing that we see oftentimes from the behavioral perspective here is that when you're when you're thinking about the almost necessary social infrastructure um, to shift um, behavior to kind of adequately manage these resources, that's that's really what's what's oftentimes like. And it's not a recognition of the problem. Like people can recognize that their catch has depleted 10x since their parents' generation or something like that. Um, but it's providing the sort of almost the social infrastructure to act on that um, as well as sort of the technological augmentation um, in terms of the other side of management that honestly I'm far less familiar with um, that can really help people achieve for their own communities like these outcomes that they're aiming for. When you think about change and behavior change, at at what level do you think about those things? Do you think about how do we, an individual fisher, what makes an individual fisher tick and what types of things are going to make this person? Or do you think about it from sort of pushing institutions uh, in a more structural level, which are going to guide this this whole community, or it's going to create more of a long-term change in norms? 
where does the rare perspective in the Fish Forever program look at those things? I suspect I'm going to give you a pretty frustrating answer to that, which is I, I think that the dichotomy can oftentimes lead us to like put people into these groups of like, oh, this person's thinking about it from the individual perspective versus this person's thinking about it from the institutional perspective. And I think it's become a sort of a buzzword recently, but I think that there is something really to thinking about this from the systems perspective, which is that individual actors are part of a system and those systems have emergent properties. And a lot of like the research on cooperation is understanding the relationship between how individuals change their behavior and others' perceptions of those and how that leads to like these emergent shifts within a community. So it, it really requires that style of analysis, at least from, from our perspective, um, to come up with good solutions. And, you know, that doesn't mean just shifting the behavior of individual fishers. Like that does mean shifting the behavior of, you know, national authorities to devolve authority to those local communities so that they can actually make those management decisions themselves. Um, so it, it, but, but still recognizing that that's a behavioral problem, right? Like how, how do we get those making decisions in national authorities to like, decide to make this choice? Or how do you get a mayor um, on board to support these sort of management practices? Those are, we oftentimes like make this dichotomy of like, oh, behavior and psychology and stuff. Oh, that's relevant for the people who are lowest on the social hierarchy. But I think that that's oftentimes a misperception that this stuff is relevant like across all of these actors in the system. Yeah, Carolyn, I would be interested in your perspective on in COVID because COVID's been, well, it's been quite long in a year for, for everyone. It's been, I, from that perspective, quite quick. And I think in terms of how it might change behavior. Have you seen anything in your project about what specific things have changed behavior and what some of those changes might've been? Yeah, I mean, some of the changes have been, right, they've been forced by the, by the shock of COVID. So not being able to get imported foods as readily has led a lot of people to increase local agricultural production. Um, and then we see really mixed responses in terms of fisheries. Some communities are actually putting stricter regulations around fisheries, recognizing that this is a real threat to the system, that this sudden need right, to be obtaining more food locally could in the long term threaten the viability of the fishery. And in other communities, people are fishing more. And there are just a few examples of people even opening up marine protected areas to fishing as well. So um, I think there's this really interesting maybe tension between this short and long-term need for food security and, and how communities are thinking about responding in the short-term and the long-term. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I work in the Pacific, which is a place that's almost canonical in the commons studies of places that have all these really wonderful institutions in place um, generated over, you know, centuries. And now we see trade and tourism and, uh, and climate change, these sort of more modern disruptions to systems that have worked really well for a long time. You mentioned earlier that that these fisheries actually are quite resilient in the face of COVID. And that wouldn't necessarily have been my intuition. One specific example is when we asked folks, how are you ensuring that there's enough food for everyone in your community? One of the most common responses would, was food sharing, which is a custom that's been practiced in the Pacific for a really long time and has a lot of social structures around it to ensure that it continues. So this, this culture, this custom of sharing foods, which 
you know, you could say as an adaptation to challenges that have faced food systems for all of time, in a sense, has really helped communities respond to this new type of threat um, that they hadn't experienced before. The big governance challenge I think that I'm grappling with at the moment and with colleagues is, um, is essentially how do we ensure that the value of local governance is recognized and particularly the value of small scale, small scale fisheries. And even though that seems, I think when I started my research, I assumed that that was obvious. I think coming from Newfoundland and being raised in kind of outport environments where fishers were the heart and soul of livelihoods, food production, culture, I thought that that was a given. But now reflecting back, I think that, and you know, global projects have identified the fact that the, the, the contributions of small scale fisheries are constantly undervalued. Um, their contribution to food production, to livelihoods, but also to potential conservation benefits through local governance are, are systematically undervalued. Um, so I'm trying to engage in work that, that works on how do we shift that narrative? How do we do better at communicating that? Um, why is that narrative less pervasive? You know, I would argue, and this is debatable, so I'm happy to hear what you think. But if we think about the public's perception of farming, I would argue that there's a pretty clear cut monocropping industrial agriculture is bad. Whereas small scale farming and diverse is good. Everybody wants local produce and local markets. But when we ask the public about fisheries, I would say generally across the board, there's a fishing is bad kind of mentality. I don't think the nuance is there. And so I think raising the profile of small scale fisheries, raising the value of their contribution to all of those benefits uh, is important. And it's something that I'm trying to tackle through um, my, my recent work. I'm thrilled to be involved with a big uh, global partnership called V2V, which is vulnerability to viability. Um, being led by Pratip Nayak out of the University of Waterloo. And it's part of that is how do we shift the narrative from framing these fisheries as vulnerable to recognizing them as viable, supporting them as viable. Um, so that's, that's the big one I'm grappling with at the moment. Eric, I found your comment about the need to go, I don't know if we wanna say it's upstream, from the communities themselves to also think about the incentives of say governmental actors. I think it's interesting, right? The, the commons literature can be seen as, I mean, maybe a response to the dominance in political science and governance studies, the dominant approach of focusing on the behavior of elected officials, looking at voting behavior, et cetera. And political scientists like James Scott are unusual in that they, they actually wanted to understand the perspective of, of peasants and rural landowners, et cetera. But then later on, there's been this for a long time as well, now critique of the commons literature that we're focusing too myopically now on local communities. And we're not thinking about, we're not applying the same lens, the same behavioral lens to other types of actors. So is there progress being made in you know, I don't know if, if we're talking about like nudges. I mean, when I, when I hear about like the behavioral work at Rare, I think about like Richard Thaler and the nudge book and like all that stuff, nudge units, et cetera. Like, are people talking about nudging um, governmental actors themselves? Because I think in the traditional paradigm, those might be seen as the nudgers rather than the nudgees. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I, it's, it's an interesting question also from the perspective of like, what is a viable research topic um, in the sense that 
some populations are for various reasons, like easier to access um, for researchers to actually like run studies on quote unquote. Um, and that tends to be people who are more accessible than like policymakers. So I think you are starting to see in some of the behavioral public policy literature now, some actual research on in that area of like, well, what can we do to shape the decisions of policymakers themselves? However, it's very small. I think what you're, I think what you're seeing more of in the last couple of years, and that's that's too, that's too narrow. Like last, you know, half decade or so, is the recognition of we're dealing with multi-actor systems. So looking only at the final actor in the chain doesn't make sense. But let's look at all the actors throughout this chain and that may result in policymakers, but that also, you know, that is, we're talking about fish buyers. If we're talking even within a local community, we're talking about, you know, all the rest of that supply chain, um, all the way to like fish on somebody's plate that is like relevant for, we need to shift behavior across this space um, to do sustainable management rather than only focusing on the individual fishers. Now, I still think there's a lot to do that actually does focus on individual fishers. So I, I, I would hate for there to be sort of a pendulum swing that goes in the opposite direction again of, well, only focusing like governance just means focusing on the, you know, interests of, of elite actors in these systems. But I, I, I think that you just need to sort of, what we often talk about in, in, sort of behavioral design is identifying like what's the sort of the behavioral journey that like is relevant for this actor to engage in a particular behavior and then looking at the various actors who influence them along that journey. And I think that understanding that entire chain is always going to be critical for us, even if we do recognize that like the final behavior that we're trying to influence is yes, the behavior of a fisher. Um, that's not a sufficient sort of analysis. Yeah, that's really interesting. And just to follow up on that, I'm going to try hard not to get too academic and jargony here, but that there are like these academic frameworks. I mean, the Ecology of Games framework, which is promoted by Mark Lubell at UC Davis, explicitly talks about trying to unpack these different games that are being played. So there's like a policy game that's played by a bunch of governmental actors here that has outcomes in the form of rules. Those rules then affect the games that local fishers or resources users play. I mean, and that maps directly onto like the perspective that I learned in grad school from the Ostroms, the Bloomington School of Institutional Analysis, it says, look, there's these different, what they call action situations. And this action situation here is where, again, the policies are made, but those policies are made under a set of incentives. And then those policies affect the incentives of um, other actors. I mean, it sounds like it's a reiteration of more or less what you just said, Eric. I think you're right, Michael. And I think that something that, that we're starting to see more innovation on is, I think you're right about thinking about this as like games within games and behavior in one game affecting the what's, you know, what's in your choice set for this other game. Um, but also I think the real sort of innovation happening right now in the behavioral sciences is sort of translating some of that, um, you know, whether it's literally expressed as game theory or something else into like the actual psychology of people and recognizing that, you know, what we might have assumed based on the payoffs in this game matrix um, doesn't really represent like the nuance that people are really bringing to their decision making. So I think that 
I think that is like broadly the right framework to put it in, but then the sort of layering on top of like, well, what does that actually mean for somebody's actual decision-making, the things that are really going through their head and what can we learn from both the theoretical and empirical literature on that stuff to then lead to even like better management outcomes. Hmm. I'd jump in at a very small scale with a very focused question that kind of builds on that. We've recently asked, so thinking through, if we require incentives to change policymaking, where do those come from? And one place they come from is public pressure. So if we're talking about shifting narratives about the ocean and public narratives that could in theory apply pressure to policymakers, can we change public perceptions about the oceans? And so we asked that question um, specifically, uh, do, um, so I'm sitting in central Canada, I'm away from the oceans, but a large majority of the world is away from oceans. So we wanted to know if people see the ocean in the future, does it change the way they think? And particularly, does it change their empathy? Does empathy increase for oceans? So we developed two future scenarios, operationalized them through virtual reality and showed them to people. We asked before and after questions on campus about empathy. And what we found is that, yes, we did actually shift people's empathy to become more empathetic towards the high seas in particular um, as a result of that tiny intervention. So it's a very narrow piece of the puzzle, but it's one that we've been trying to tackle um, at Brock. And it's been interesting that we were able to demonstrate a, an increase in empathy. And then to my horror, we also uh, operationalized a pessimistic and an op optimistic scenario. I was really hoping the optimistic scenario would resonate and we could build on these good news stories as a source of change. But unfortunately, our data showed us that people's empathy increased more for the pessimistic scenario. Um, so that's some new data that we're still mulling through and hoping to publish soon. Um, but it's, you know, it's thinking about not a step before behavioral change, but thinking, can we change empathy for an abstract thing um, through a tiny intervention like that? And it's been really fun. You know, Jessica, that's that's really interesting, the finding you mentioned about how it can affect empathy. You know, one thing that we look at like the empathic concern literature in psychology, I think it would be very consistent with, with what you found there in terms of like people empathizing with people in difficult situations, um, that being what really tugs. Um, and then I think the, the challenge then of then converting that into like the behavioral outcomes that you're then aiming for and like setting up the sort of pathway for, okay, now I'm feeling this concern and then setting them up with the like, well, what to do about it to apply that pressure you're talking about. But, but I think that's, I think that you've hit on something really, really important here of when we're thinking about the entire chain here, all the way up to those who can provide that sort of social pressure on policymakers. Like we have to be thinking about the messaging that's most effective for them rather than the mess messaging that might be most effective for, you know, folks like us who might be thinking about this, you know, in our everyday lives. Yeah, I had a follow-up question, Jessica, as well. So thinking also about what Eric said about how do we translate these kind of models of thinking into actual human behavior, I'm wondering, with these empathy studies, would a next step be thinking about how does the increased empathy either decrease over time? So how, like how much further down the line do they still have empathy? Uh, does it diminish? And does that empathy lead to some sort of a practical action like a willingness to pay for something or a willingness to volunteer time and i'm wondering if you if you've explored any of those uh, types of studies 
Yeah, those are excellent questions uh, and questions that we asked in our survey. For, um, so we did a three month follow up after you saw this future scenario in VR. Uh, and what we found is that empathy went back to its original levels. So with our tiny intervention, empathy was not maintained over time, which of course the theory would tell us that you need maintained increased in order to translate into behavioral changes. So I think that means we need to go back to the drawing board and rethink the delivery, the engagement, how immersive was the experience. There's all kinds of literature on that that I need to better acquaint myself with before we try again. But also the, the um, intent for behavioral change or actual change is something that's critical too if we're theorizing that empathy is along that, you know, that causal chain. And we did ask questions about intent for action we're still in the process of exploring that data. Um, but yeah, that's something that's, that we definitely want to pursue going forward because who cares ultimately if you care more? What, we, what really matters is do you change behavior or does your behavior incentivize other changes in behavior? Um, so yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll keep working on that. Well, I mean, Jessica just reminds me of questions that have been asked about like nature documentaries, right? Like there's this, we all watch them and, and I think there was some recent research that said that, look, it, it makes people care more in like a kind of global diffuse way, but it doesn't necessarily like change their behavior. Like I want the polar bears to be around. There's the warm glow, but like, I'm still gonna, my life when I wake up tomorrow is gonna be the same. You know, I th it, it maps onto this concept that you'll see come up in, you know, pro-social psychology generally called the, the intention action gap um, where they, we, we, for, for, there was a period in which psychology oftentimes assumed that our like intention measures were good measures of like future behavior. It's a lot easier to measure them. So we would just capture the intention measures um, and just move on. Um, but then like there became this like rather robust literature showing that like our, the, the fact that we shift intentions with some sort of intervention, like doesn't correlate all that well with uh, the shifts in the downstream um, behavior. And a lot of actually work in, particularly actually environmental psychology recently has been like, well, what can you do to, to close that, to like make the mapping much more clear between, you know, that change in emotional response and intention that I just experienced and the, the behavioral outcome that you're actually driving. And I mean, I think this really gets to what, what Jessica was saying about sort of the, the, the decay of, of that emotional response is that like, we, we can't really expect um, anything we do, like watching a movie, like to actually change how you feel for the rest of your life. That's just not how emotions work. It, they wouldn't work very well if they did operate in that way. Um, in fact, they tend to be like the stimulus that you just experience and they need to be linked to like action that I can now take for them to have the biggest effect. Otherwise, you're almost always going to experience the exact sort of decay there. Um, and it, it yeah, it really goes to both a measurement problem of just assuming that attitudes and intentions are what, what matter, as well as like an actual practical problem of like designing the interventions better. Yeah, I love that. And I hope that's where we can take some of this research is exactly that, that gap between intent and action. They also, it, the intent doesn't matter if it's not translated. Um, when we wrote the grant, we were really optimistic. It was pre-COVID and we hoped to take the VR remotely to policymaking forums and see if we could do some sort of intervention with policymakers in live time who are negotiating the high seas treaties and that type of thing um, to see if we, you know, depending on who we were working with, um, but COVID shut us down, obviously. Um, but yeah, that, that's something that we'd like to continue pursuing. Um, I've got small kids and I've been told that you need to expose them to a food 12 times before they will 
you know, respond. Maybe there's something with repeated engagement. And it, it, anyway, the whole communication of these narratives and how do we shift public opinion and apply pressure um, is something I, yeah, I want to keep working on. I mean, one final thought about that, Eric. I mean, that's really interesting. I feel like when I've engaged with the behavioral literature, the point that has resonated with me most strongly is that if you want people to do something, make it easy for them to do it. Like if you want to translate intention into action, it has to be, oh, like here's, do you want to round up when you're at the cash, you know, when you're at the cashier because, oh, I can do that and then I'm on my way. But I feel like a lot of people struggle um, in the political space because there is so much intention, there's that desire to change. And then there's like this, that's just met with paralysis because we don't really know even how to translate that into action. Yeah, and I, I think you're right in the sense that there are there's a slew of behavioral challenges that we could like make real hay with they're just dealing with how easy they are. I I think though that like especially in the policymaker space, though honestly, I mean, and this is a core part of the the talk that I'm going to be giving at the conference is we actually know a lot about what gets people to cooperate. Um, and some of that is lowering the burden on doing so, but a lot of that has to do with a really lich understanding of like how reputation works in cooperative situations and how to change the reputational dynamics in a situation such that there's actually you know, throwing the jargon down, but like a stable equilibrium of cooperation, which is not generally what we would expect in these sorts of situations. But like, I think that's exactly what we should be looking for in the policy space as well of if this person is going to refuse to adopt um, the cooperative behavior here of supporting fisheries in X, Y, or Z way, then you have to tie their reputation to that. And that's where a lot of that, that public demand stuff that you're talking about, like it needs, it needs to represent itself in those reputational outcomes. So I think that, yeah, you're not wrong about the ease, but that there are a series of other things that we can also bring to, to this to really, to really help us here. Well, I think this, this touches on another question that I had and now something that I've been thinking about for a while is this this move that I see increasingly towards inter and transdisciplinary work and this bringing a, a connection closer from kind of this academy's more theoretical perspective to a real world application. And I think we have uh, we have some experience with NGOs and I think, Carolyn, if I believe you also work with WCS a bit in your work. Yes, on this COVID work, yeah. Yeah. So I would I would like to hear your perspectives from like the academic and the more practitioner NGO side on like what are what are academics missing from that practitioner side like how can we better apply our work or design our studies in a way that which they can be more practically applicable and then from the science side how can practitioners better use the work that we have um, and how can we do a better job at communicating that the value of that? Yeah, I mean, this is a question that I'm I'm constantly wrestling with. Uh, almost all of my research is done in collaboration with local uh, nonprofit organizations or is community-based in Palau. Uh, and I often wonder, am I, am I just answering a question that everyone here already knows the answer to, uh, especially with my work with traditional ecological knowledge? It's like, well, you're just telling me what you know. So what am I, <laughs> what am I providing in return? And so I think it's really important to stay rooted in what our local needs. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that we can't draw broader lessons from uh, local people that can be applied elsewhere that aren't known elsewhere, right? But I'm really challenging myself to always be thinking about, okay, if this is the theoretical contribution, how does this actually impact Fisher's lives, the people who write 
gave me their time and their resources to help understand this problem. Um, I think we have a real obligation as, as academics and as scientists to stay rooted in that way and to communicate in ways that are accessible uh, to the people that we work with, which ultimately, right, it doesn't look like peer-reviewed publications. Um, and I'm still learning what it does look like, right? Um, but I think it's a real responsibility that we have. Yeah, I had a conversation with a student the other day, and there's still the strong need in many cases for fundamental research, which might not necessarily have an applied aspect to it, but that comes really difficult. And we had a situation where we wanted to get data and we wanted to go interview some some fishers and some community association, association members. And they're like, well, what is it for? Like it's people come in the past uh, and interviewed us and they never come back uh, to do anything. And probably they were doing fundamental work. And I, I struggle with how to convey the importance of doing basic fundamental science in a lot of areas where we don't have good knowledge and we might not be ready to make the leap towards applying what we know because we're not there yet or we haven't built the the partnerships with local NGOs maybe like you have in your project or we haven't built the partnerships with with local government and conveying that that necessity for for a base fundamental knowledge and not having to feel like you always have to justify that is really difficult Eric it'd be great to hear from your perspective yeah so I mean I'm an academia dropout right like I I mean I started a, a PhD in in psychology um, and then a couple years in just got very frustrated running lab studies on cooperation. Um, did finish the PhD, um, but but pivoted very much to like doing applied work and then getting out of dodge. Um, I, I, I do, what has been almost more frustrating to me has not been academics who don't want their stuff applied. Almost everybody wants, you know, at least among the academics who I interact with, they would love to see, yeah, I'm doing applied research, but it'll have some, so, or do, do, doing fundamental research, but it'll have some applied outcome. But their ability to actually like really engage with the fundamental questions that we actually need answered in the applied space is like, oftentimes not not there. I think a good counterexample of that is like the applied cooperation team at MIT, which like is thinking very hard about, you know, evolutionary dynamics. And then how do you actually turn that into, you know, uh, medication adherence, like, like really connecting these like deep theoretical questions with these applied outcomes, but it takes a ton of work. And I mean, it also just takes a ton of effort on their part, building all of the partnerships necessary to do it. And so the frustrating thing for me has been an academic unwillingness to do the hard work to make theory actually like do the theory work that actually is needed rather than purely the theory work that's purely interesting um, from that academic perspective. And, and to be clear, I mean, my advisor was a philosopher. Like I don't have an aversion to, you know, doing very um, like in the head sort of sort of work. It's that not thinking about, well, what is the implication for how that in the head work could help us understand something which then could lead to whether it be improved programming or what have you. Yeah, and I might add to that too, as a community-based researcher, especially, you know, a white American woman working in the decolonizing Pacific, I think it's really important that when we ask these basic research questions that we're not doing it in this parachute science way, right? That there's still an opportunity for community engaged and community driven work in basic science research, but we have to make the effort and take that extra time and seek out those extra resources in order to make that uh, a reality, I think. Yeah, I'd just love to jump in there too and say, um, I'm a, I've 
I've drunk the transdisciplinary Kool-Aid. I'm fully on board and have been worked with World Fish in the past and, and really value the long-term embedded partnered collaborative research that delivers questions and answers that are relevant to people on the ground in the places where we work. Um, but I think another, like a, a, an extra layer that we need to be cautious of as academics and as researchers is this growing mistrust in science in general and the sort of like pushback of, against, you know, the credibility of science, I think urges us to be extra vigilant about particularly maybe quite theoretical research that doesn't has demonstrated impact for benefiting people because the world is in a rough place. We're dealing with COVID, we're dealing with climate change, we're dealing with many challenges. And so communicating the value of the research we do, whatever type of research it is, in a clear and credible and rigorous way is extra important right now. I'm not saying how, I'm just saying we've got a tough challenge. Yeah, I really, I really like what both of you are saying is how do we, like for, for us, for a lot of academics who sit and spend a lot of time in the office, particularly in COVID because we can't travel, how do we better make our research questions relevant? That's something that I struggled with. And I think one aspect, maybe you had something to say about this, Michael, is like, are we too stuck in thinking uh, we're too path dependent. What might be one way of thinking it on the theories that we've used in the past, or the the frameworks that we use. Maybe I've I'm too stuck in thinking about the social ecological systems framework that I don't I'm not seeing some obvious questions or some obvious other challenges when I go to a local community, which are maybe right in front of me, but I'm I'm kind of blinded by it because that's what the, the literature tells me is the best framework for viewing such a thing. I'm not sure how to better to better root myself. What do you all think about? I mean, so Eric, you were talking about cooperation and one of the bottlenecks that, if, that I think I've perceived in a lot of this work is actually cooperation among scientists. We've got, you know, these folks doing, doing this over there. We've got these folks doing this over there. And it seems like, I mean, compared to other sectors, just academia feels very decentralized. And of course I like that, I have been acculturated to problematize excessive centralization. So I like, you know, I'm, I've, I've, been, I've drunk that Kool-Aid too. It's all, it's flexible, it's co-management, it's all this good stuff. But like, I wonder, I guess here's the question. If, if we were going to have more cooperation among scientists studying these issues, what would you want it to look like? So I can give a first take on it. It may be a, you know, we do a bad job of incentivizing team science. And, and that, so when I mean team science, I don't mean like, oh yeah, we had, you know, four people from different universities, you know, listed at PIs on the grant. I mean like large Hadron Collider team science. Like we have thousands of folks collaborating, like look at those, look at those publications and look at the list of names that's attached to them. It's incredible. And they've, they've done something at something somewhere like CERN to actually like align on like, these are the big questions and we see it as worthwhile to align to answer those big questions. I think a big part of perhaps our problems is a failure to align on the big questions that can allow people to kind of converge on, well, this is whether it be you know, um, Stefan, like the, the framework that we're, we're, we're adopting or what have you, but to just kind of focus in that sort of way and then partial out all of these different things that we need to answer in order to, 
to 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 lead to that outcome. And I and I I honestly find it to be I don't unless we get that sort of convergence in like the what's important part. Um, I'm not sure how you're going to get real team science in in these areas. I suspect that the convergence is going to come if it is, if it were ever to come from an understanding of like, well, what would make fundamental changes in like if we understood the answer to these questions, what would make what would drive fundamental change if we could know that? Um, and it's so so work, I guess the work we need to do is to, is to understand is to do the, I guess the pre-work of understanding what how to answer those questions of what questions matter. but I, I think we're a long way off. I'd love to jump in and respond, Stefan, that your, your um, concern that your disciplinary lens skews your perspective is, I love that because clearly all of ours do. But that's why I think that the, the big transdisciplinary teams like Eric is talking about, if we could get the funding for that, that, that to me is a real way forward because I, I do risk, I do worry about the risk of losing our disciplinary speciality and our, our depth of knowledge if we become too interdisciplinary and too broad uh, in our focus. So to me, there's a massive value in having real specialists in social ecological systems theory, real specialists in commons theory, real specialists, but then working together. Um, and I know you guys have talked to in previous episodes, Emily Darling and Georgina Gurney, who have led a global um, monitoring program across more than six countries with hundreds of communities with a fairly disciplinary, in, a transdisciplinary lens and to me, I'm really inspired and excited by that. And I know it's not the norm for universities, but there is recognition that impact on the ground matters in addition to publications. There is recognition that transdisciplinarity takes time, requires long-term funding, and there's some funding sources you know, in the 10-year range that are propping up. Um, and I, I find a lot of hope and inspiration in those. Yeah, I think that's a good way forward. Yeah, I really agree with the value of transdisciplinary teams as well. And I think there's value in interdisciplinarity. I mean, I think about conversations I've had with social scientists and natural scientists at the table, which often happens in social ecological systems research, and the kind of breakdown of communication and the failure to understand, you know, why is your p-value <laughs> the size that it is, or what is purpose of sampling, and is that is that legitimate? Um, so I think there's also a need to increase interdisciplinary education or, or like interdisciplinary understanding anyway, our ability to talk to one another, to understand one another's languages. You know, I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, how you guys are talking about the value of interdisciplinarity and like the, but, but I think that we, it's oftentimes, it's very easy to say that those things are so, so valuable. Um, and you guys are doing, you know, walking the walk of actually doing that sort of work, which is awesome. But I think that we sometimes can get, you know, Reminds me of uh, Michael Muthakrishna. He's a uh, like cultural evolutionary psychologist. Um, he, he published a, a short blurb, you know, a few months ago on uh, the paradox of diversity. Um, so understanding how this can create real costs in in a in a collaboration as well as real benefits, and it's like that first step of recognizing those real costs that um, can allow you to design better ways of interacting um, to, to diminish them. Um, but kind of behooves us as those of those who want to do that sort of transdisciplinary work um, to really like, well, what, because I'm, I'm sure all of us have encountered those difficulties in actually doing that work. Um, and then trying to, well, how can we design our collaborations um, such that we do get the best out of all of these different areas rather than trying to make ourselves all, you know, 
jacks of all all trades. I mean, that's really interesting. It reminds me of, um, I mean, so I feel like a lot of what happens in like highly diverse settings. So, I mean, diversity is multidimensional. And a friend of mine, Jacobo Baggio, who's at Florida International University, has done some research on the effects that cognitive diversity have on cooperation. And one of the interesting aspects of his findings is that it's not always the more diversity along every dimension, the better. If people are so diverse cognitively and intellectually, then it actually makes it hard for them to like get on the same page in the first place. And I feel like this is, this is one of those findings that, I mean, at least for me, it felt like that mapped onto my own like human experience. Like I've been a, in a room where people can't get past their own like caricatures of each other. And so we have this kind of like mutual dismissiveness, which I feel is, you know, well, it's frustrating. Another friend of mine once said that he thinks that we, we one way to tackle this is if everyone could, <clears throat> if everyone could understand the constraints that each other faces, like, look, we have these different research questions. If you think that the research questions are interesting, so let's assume that you think that, then like, what are the constraints that they face in actually answering those? Because for them, a hundred observations might be a lot. For them, an R squared of like 0.2 might be a lot. And just getting to that place where you don't just say, okay, well, you're, 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 it's kind of, it's othering essentially, right? And it'd be interesting if there was some kind of like intervention that was tailored to exactly this context, right? Like how do we get 20 people that are, have a lot of cognitive diversity to get over the initial like activation energy of mutual dismissiveness? I'd love to jump in there because I did that at the beginning of this session where I said, I don't work with conservation scientists because we work on different things. And that is absolutely correct in that many of us do it and it's prevalent in academia is they are different from me. We do different research. There's, they want to save the fish and I want to save the people to grossly simplify. But um, to me, this like the OECM's conversation, which I talk about at the, at the conference, but it, it, it is a real source of hope for me because it is getting people in the rooms to talk about shared research questions, values, approaches that had that I hadn't experienced before. Um, so it's one. It, it's it's a it's I guess a marine governance tool that is bringing together communities that have been traditionally quite divided. Um, and I, I am experiencing it from one little group on the inside as a real way forward in, in overcoming or breaking down some of those preconceived notions um, of, about how we do our work and what we prioritize to find out that actually we are all quite concerned about healthy oceans, healthy communities at the end of the day. Um, yeah. I do feel there's a problem with the incentives, as we were talking about earlier, in terms of coming to a consensus about what those big questions are or might be in the sense that being an academic up to a certain point, you're almost like self-employed in the sense that you have to kind of argue and put your ideas forward and you're like running your own little business and you're trying to show that you can produce things and that you have ideas. And a lot of that's trying to convince others that the questions that, that I'm answering or that you're answering are the ones that are the important ones. And it seems that's an incentive issue that's difficult to get around. It's more of a common uh, saying that I would like to hear what you think are some of those questions uh, in the fishery space or aquaculture space. Can you think you could even extend that to marine commons, marine governance, if you like, where, where do you see those? And then I would also 
you know, I think to, to, to wrap this up to what would you like to get out of this conference? I'll jump in. Um, I, I think the, the burning question for me, which I've referred to, um, is really about how do we shift narratives about the oceans, but particularly about small scale fisheries. So that's one that I will be applying myself to over the next, you know, hopefully decade. Um, and so I'm bringing that lens to this conference, it, which has got me thinking about it in a slightly different way, rather than being there to hear ideas and research and outcomes. I'm, I'm trying to approach it with a lens where I'm interested in this sort of um, narratives that are being told and, and what kind of, um, you know, what kind of stories are emerging from my cohort um, in, in the conference. So um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it and approaching it with sort of a different lens, perhaps as like a bit of a research um, endeavor in itself, which is interesting. Yeah, for me, I think we've done a lot of work over the last several decades, really, to define and understand and apply sustainability. And I'm really excited by the growing work on equity. So equity at the local scale in fishing communities, equity at the international scale, um, with trade, questions of food security and nutritional security. So for me, I, I'm excited to contribute to work on, on equity and really excited about the many uh, sessions happening at the conference. So I think, you know, my, both my lens on it, but I feel like it's still a, a cross-cutting question that, that I, we're focused on. I think a lot of people with their own lens are focused on too, is how do we address the behaviors of actors across the system to lead to, you know, sustainable outcomes? And, you know, that's, that's a big tentish sort of answer in the sense that it can allow you to, you know, zoom in on a lot of different places, but it, you know, requires a mapping of that system, requires empathizing with the actors, it requires a analysis of those, and then a much more sort of design thinking approach to think about, well, how do we actually shift behavior given what we understand about the actors and their relationships in the system? Um, you know, what, what I am hoping to get a lot of value out of, and this kind of related to our, our conversations about uh, interdisciplinary um, research, but um, despite now kind of working on fisheries uh, in, in a sort of indirect way, um, I'm hoping to actually get a much better understanding of how other folks who are coming at this from a somewhat similar perspective of like commons governance, um, but otherwise probably a pretty different one, um, kind of conceive of, of these issues and trying to, well, by understanding that lens, you know, what can I take from that and sort of put into kind of our language of behavioral science and sort of kind of a steal from one discipline and, uh, and take to another. So that's what really gets me excited about it. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is produced by Michael Cox, Courtney Hammond-Wagner, and myself. We are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To listen to more episodes, you can find us on any podcast app or listen on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. On our website, you will find our link to our blog and our Patreon page where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at InCommonPod.